Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes. Hey, Talk Tuners, welcome back to the show where we share stories and memories of the music that has shaped our lives. This is Stephanie Pena. Hi, Talk Tuners, Stephanie Myers. How are we doing today? Man, how are we doing today? It's uh, It's been quite a week for me, Stephanie, um, but I'm glad that we're here today to uh, talk about our memories and our favorite topic of music. I know that uh, you saw Queen Bee, Queen Bay. Please <laughs> tell us more. I am ready for this. I did. What a fun week and what a time seeing her. As you know, Talk Tuners, we've recorded these ahead of time. So Beyonce here in LA was doing three or four nights at the SoFi Stadium. Um, I got to see her. And man, I am still kind of speechless. Um, I'm still without words. She is such a consummate performer. Uh, as I talk about a lot on the show, I just, you know, I love really good showmanship and she brought it in droves. I've seen, you know, I think hundreds of concerts in my life, mm-hmm. as I know you have Stephanie. And, uh, I would say this is a, it was in the top five. It was That's incredible. Awesome. I mean, by the end, she's riding a crystal horse all over. And then at the end to say goodbye to all of us, she's like harnessed in flying over the crowd. Um, there's all these set changes, all these costume changes, um, really engaging the crowd and playing from her whole discography. I can't even, yeah, if you were there, talk tuners for any of those shows, or if you've seen her on this, the Renaissance tour, this tour, uh, then I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about, but yeah, she was really, really incredible. We had side stage view and it didn't matter. It didn't matter because she is one of those performers that can play to the back row in a way that is so rare. So yeah, just feeling really grateful right now, still riding that concert high is really awesome. And yeah, I know that, you know, live, live music is life uh, for both of mm-hmm. us. So it was huge and it was awesome. Did she do like, she went back in her discography and did some destiny child music and along with her own solo stuff? she alluded to it it kind of a montage okay. near the end yeah yeah but uh yeah it was incredible it was incredible she she did it all and yeah way to hold an arena in your hand you know but she managed to do it Ooh. yeah i mean she's queen for a reason that is awesome super jealous that's super cool um was it sold out i imagine i think all of her shows yeah. for the la run were sold out yeah that's excellent. That is awesome. So, and I'm, I'm sure the crowd, all different walks of life, it's Beyonce. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was awesome. It was incredible. I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm still without words, honestly. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Well, super jealous. Maybe one of these days I'll be able to see her. She is on my list. Um, but let's go ahead and just turn it to today's topic. We are talking about a band that was formed in the early 80s that has hit the masses for sure over the course of their career. We are talking about the Violent Femmes and their 1983 
hit blister in the sun. They are, if top tuners know, an American folk punk band. They're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they consist of founding members Gordon Gano, Brian Ritchie, Blaise Garcia, and John Sparrow. Former members of the band include drummers Victor De Lorenzo, Guy Hoffman, and Brian uh, Vigalone. And they are really awesome. They're one of my faves. Uh, they've just have this love of music that you can tell is infectious. And in an interview with Under the Radar magazine, Gordon talked about when he first found music, right? So he's talking about those early formative days. And he said, it was always in my world in a significant way. Really, I can't think of a time without music. I would make up songs and sing them when I was three and four years old. I started playing some instruments when I was around 10 years old but it was always in my family and always around me. My father would play guitar and sing old country songs. I grew up with music being played and sung around me and also being played on records. Then I had the whole punk thing explode for me when I was about 15. That was a whole other thing. I have older brothers and sisters who were then into other kinds of music. Two of them were at the original Woodstock. So it's that vintage. I would hear music from them. So music has always been in my life. So I think about, you know, Gordon with that context coming in and making this band who's just fantastic. And I will talk all about my love of them because they are really one of a kind. That's interesting. Folk punk band. I haven't, as a fan of Violent Femmes, I wouldn't even put them, I wouldn't classify them as that. So that that alone is interesting. So I'm going to have to go back and look to see, hey, who else is considered folk punk? Yeah, that, that is extremely, extremely uh, unique category, in my opinion. I've, I've never heard about that until today. But, uh, but yeah, so the Violent Femmes. Oh, maybe I was thinking X, who often get that folk punk label and sound differently. Yeah, and they sound, I would say, differently than Violent Femmes, but they often get yeah. that because they just cross that crossroad. So it's so interesting, interesting to me how we assign genres as a society, right? Because I feel like sometimes it's arbitrary. No, for sure. And I wouldn't even think of X as a folk punk band, but I like that. Right on. All right, cool. Excellent. They're amazing live as well. Yeah. So, all right, let's get back to Violent, Violent Femmes in general. Where did they come from? Where did this amazing band, how'd they get their start? Well, they got their start because they were discovered by James Honeyman Scott of the Pretenders in 1981. So, hey, there you go. Um, you know, 
pretenders. I'm sure a lot of our listeners here know exactly who they are and love them. And so that's phenomenal that they were scouted by a really great name in rock and roll. But check it out, y'all. So this album I mentioned came out in 83. And the song came out in 83. It didn't break any records or it didn't even hit the charts. But here's the thing. This goes to show that music and good music never dies and will always have relevance and longevity if it's done well. And this is definitely Blister in the Sun and Bile of Femme's music as a whole. Because this particular song didn't hit Billboard charts until 1991. That is a long-ass time after 83. Okay, y'all guys do the math. That's pretty fucking cool. Then on top of that, they had a CD release in 87 of an album that hit gold status, didn't have Blister in the Sun. But this particular album, their very first one, was certified platinum in 91. And by 93, they had already released five albums. And this I found this on Forbes.com. So yeah, I mean, they're rocking and rolling. They're pushing out music. They're touring. They're doing what they need to do. But as far as hitting the masses... And getting that big publicity, that didn't happen until 91. That's crazy. Super nuts. Wild to me. Yep. And to even talk about their relevance as a whole, Gnarls Barkley, back in 2006, he covered Violent Femmes, Gone Daddy Gone, and his album. So it, it this just goes to show that you know they're super relevant to this day, and they inspire and influence folks. And... Dave Grohl I actually found in my uh, my research for this particular episode that Dave Grohl told Gano, lead singer, and I'm going to quote him, when I hear ACDC's Highway to Hell, I want to break something. And the same can be said from the feelings invoked by Blister in the Sun. When you hear that opening riff, you need to stand up, bounce your head to the beat, and feel like you want to pump your fists in the air. It also helps that in the middle of the song, Gano drops his voice to a whisper before bringing it back up on Let Me Go On. How do you not feel like this is what rock music was invented for? I love that quote and I can see Dave Grohl saying it and it makes me happy. But yes. But it's completely true. Completely true. I mean, guys, you know the song. Everybody does. Uh, That is, yeah, you're, (laughs) it makes you it makes you super energized and then you get a chance to breathe and then you get energized again. Yeah. It's, it's good shit. It's incredible. It's incredible. And I think about it and think about how it's uh, this many years later, definitely their biggest hit. And it was actually the first track off their self-titled 1983 album. So when you think about it, it's like, wow, what a huge stroke of luck. That's mm-hmm. so, so cool. And we'll talk to you about the trajectory of the song, where that went. Cause it, to your point, Stephanie, it didn't, uh, it didn't start off that way in 1983. It was a little bit of a snowball effect. So I thought that mm-hmm. was really cool, a little bit of a slow burn. But what's really interesting to me is that Gordon originally wrote this song for a female vocalist, which is so wild to me. Uh, but he said in uh, the interview, it has a certain story, which is unlike anything else that I've wrote in that the genesis of it was that I'd gone to a poetry reading and somehow met somebody and exchanged numbers. And I got a call from this woman who said that she wanted to put a band together and wanted it to be something like the Plasmatics. And I had never played in a band, but I guess she knew that I played. So I thought I'm going to go and join whoever's there and we'll make some music. But I wanted to come and be able to offer a song if somebody maybe wanted to sing. So that's when I wrote Blister in the Sun because I thought it was going to have this woman 
be able to sing this song and this band that she was putting together and was going to front. But there was a call, something happened, and the meetup never occurred. And I never saw her again. No connection whatsoever. <laughs> I did hear from somebody, just to give a little into it, who she heard had joined a cult and moved to Canada. <laughs> but, that's, <laughs> but that's why I wrote the song. The riff was just something playing on the guitar, and I liked it. Then the words just came and flowed and came together pretty quickly, and I liked it, and I still like it. What a cool origin story, Gordon. So this person now, I bet, is real pissed off. That she did not connect with Gano and, you know, and record one of the biggest songs in rock and roll to this day. Like, talk about missing right. out. But who knows, right? She joined the cult, so she probably doesn't know anything about media, anything on the mainstream. So she's still off in cultville doing yeah. her cult thing. Like, yeah. not even know that she could have been major and, yeah. you know, some had some, you know, some good pocket change, too. So, right? that's funny. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Of all the things, it's just, just like, nah, peace out. It was like, that is quite the interesting turn of fate. Wow. So I thought that was really neat. And uh, like we said, this song has gone on really forever. It's gone in different directions. There's uh, some lyric misinterpretations about it through the years. Um, if you listen to Blister in the Sun, it references drug use. But after the song was released, some people misinterpreted that the lyrics were actually about masturbation. And uh, in a 2013 interview, right? Yeah, it was like, okay, that's that's a pretty wide gulf of topics. But okay, whatever. I guess it could happen. And then in this, yes, 2013 interview with The Village Voice, Gordon said, I don't think there's a whole lot to understand with the lyrics. In fact, it was maybe 10 or 15 years later when somebody was asking me about that song and said something like, well, you know what that song's about. And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? Well, everybody knows. You wrote it. I'm like, what? And then they told me the song was about masturbation. I never thought of it like that. So I thought that was really funny because it got back to Gordon. He's like, I had no idea. Well, yeah. And I can understand for folks that maybe just know the song and haven't really paid attention to the lyrics, there are certain references there, like stained sheets, things of that nature. You'd be like, okay, I can see where that correlation comes from. Sure. But knowing that it is about drug use, that makes the most sense. Yeah. Right? If you go back and look at the lyrics, you're strung out, high as a kite. Enough said. I think so. I mean, that's, that's the lyrics. Yeah. I'm high as a kite. Of course. <laughs> That's funny, dude. That's right? Great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. To me, it all made sense. To me, it all made sense. But it's so interesting how this song has just gone through these cycles. And I think the biggest uh, revamp in its cycle came around 1997 with the John uh, Cusack movie, Gross Point Blank. And uh, John had initially requested an updated version of the song. And it was a slower arrangement. It had saxophones. It had strings. And that version of the song was called Blister 2000. But then John said, I'd like to include the original version of the song as well. But those original master tapes had long been disposed of. So the band said, let's record a new version of the 1983 arrangement. But neither of those versions appear in the actual film. So those re-recorded versions did not show up. But in yeah, the they don't. video did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. like I know that movie at the back of my hand, and it no, <laughs> no, okay, that's cool, right? Yeah, and it was the new music video uh, that did kind of catapult it. It was created for the new recording of the 1983 arrangement. It features Gordon as a deranged assassin trying to kill Socks the Cat 
in puppet form and there's interspersed with clips from the film. And I highly suggest everyone watch that music video. I rewatched it in preparation for this episode. It was hilarious and awesome. And I was like, of course people connected with this weirdness. It's fantastic. So I thought that was an interesting little resurgence. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That is so funny. And just like a quick pause here, just thinking about where the song has gone. Y'all, Gordon's father was a preacher. Could you imagine? Like, I mean, just <laughs> drug use, masturbation, and uh, good job, son. Good job. Yeah. Making the family proud. <laughs> Gordon's like, Gordon's like, that's cool, whatever. I thought that was really funny. I also thought it was really funny that right now in recent um, concerts that they do, they actually start with Blister in the Sun lately when I looked at their recent mm-hmm. set list. And I thought that's funny because it's like, I think that's an intentional move to maybe weed out some casual fans that maybe only cared about that song. It's like, well, we're going to play it right away. So yeah. really they've, you know, their relationship with the songs changed over the years, but I thought that was really neat and they have had such a trajectory. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that's a really great approach because normally when you go see bands that have these iconic songs that reach the masses, it's usually at an encore or one of the very song, last songs um, mm-hmm. on the list. That's usually the formula. And I like that a lot. That's for sure. Because the violent fans have, have a very large large following and you know to kind of piggyback off what you're saying stephanie about you know blister in the sun being in the media and the first time i heard the song was in 95 and that was because of my so-called life and yep bringing back those 90s when angela finally got over jordan catalano there is an episode where she's just like yep i'm over him and here she is dancing around her bedroom singing blister in the sun and that is the very first time i had ever heard it and then after that it just you know hearing that particular song it's like just evolved i'd always hear it at clubs it would be random it would be like no i'm not going to like an 80s night a 90s night you know or just pop music like it could i could be in the tahano club i'm not messing with you and this shit would come on and everyone's like yeah and everyone would just do the little dance and then when the whisper happens they get on their knees like go going towards on their knees and then they jump up it was like i was just totally floored like i didn't know that this was like a thing and i'm like okay very cool very cool and then even violent femmes outside of that their sound with their other music is so different from blister in the sun that it really took me a while to figure out all these particular songs is here and there that I just knew was actually from one band. So what I mean is in 1994, Ethan Hawke sings to Winona Ryder in the movie Reality Bites, Violent Femmes added up. And I'm like, okay, I knew, right? So that's a year before I heard Blister in the Sun in 95. I'm like, oh, that's a cool song. What is that? Not even doing the research, not even caring. Okay. And then in the same year in 94, Violent Femmes release uh, Color Me Once as part of the Crow soundtrack, which is my absolute favorite song. And it sounds nothing like any, doesn't sound like Add It Up, doesn't sound like Blister in the Sun or any of their other hits. And so I probably had a eureka moment, probably in 97 or something. and be like, oh, that's one band. <laughs> that's all the same band. It's not the same. Pendeja. Wait a moment. <laughs> what a pendeja. That's why I go, oh shit. But I mean, that's fucking cool though, right? I mean, wow. Um, but yeah, so Violent Femmes, they're just, they're they're not, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? The multifaceted. There you go. They got, they got different sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love them so much. And I've actually been a fan of them since I was probably 12 or 13 when they came to my awareness and I got really into their added up album and that's their hits from 81 to 1993. And it's a great little uh, retrospective of all their hits. So many good ones on there. I think my fave songs of theirs, if I had to rank them or think about it, I would be Waiting for the Bus, Country Death Song, What Do I Have to Do, Dance Motherfucker Dance, which is fantastic. It's got an intro that reminds me a lot of MC5's uh, Kick Out the Jams. So top tuners, go listen to both of those if you haven't already. And then my all-time fave of theirs is I Held Her in My Arms. It's another one of those great songs with the zippy melody and sad lyrics, which is a great genre, one of my favorite genres. And, you know, I also got into them because I also just really thought Gordon's voice was so unique and cool. Mm-hmm. And that's part of how they stood out to me in so many ways, and it, including this very clever songwriting. So for me, that's how I connected with them. Yeah, I mean, definitely unique. I didn't know it was the same band. All these rap yeah. songs I'm hearing, I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. It's like it all comes together. And I also think about them, uh, it's just something that I don't think they're often as commended for, even though they should be, but it's like a pretty biting commentary on American culture. And they've written these songs that are really, I think, good commentaries with that. You can see that in their songs, American Music, America Is, Old Mother Reagan, there's even others. But they, you know, wear their thoughts on their sleeve, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I think they're really cool in that way. Um And yeah, after these years of fandom, I finally got to see them in Houston around 2002. It was an outdoor show and they were so fantastic. Although it wasn't a secret show, I remember it was pretty last minute. You kind of had to be in the know that it was happening. So Mm -hmm. we kind of got pretty upfront for this outdoor show and it was so great. And I just remember really appreciating Gordon's frontman energy and finally getting to witness that firsthand He's got his kind of like little dances and bopping and he really gets into it. And I just really appreciated all the showmanship. I thought it was fantastic. That's the folk side. That's the folk side That's coming the folk out. side. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually got to saw, we saw them together back in 2006 um, at the Warsaw venue in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And that's the one and only time I've seen them live. And I, great show. Definitely. Of course I, I don't, uh, not going to diss whatever, but I was disappointed because they did not play Color Me Once. I was just like, damn. And nowadays, I've mentioned this a million times, but I love Setless FM. So I know what I'm walking into for every show. Did not have that trusty resource. So let me know. You're going to be disappointed. But it's okay. <laughs> it was it was 99.9% amazing and loved absolutely You know, seeing them live and good energy and a great venue. But yes. So I still have not been able to hear that song live. Maybe one of these days. Who knows? One of these days. One of these days. I'm so glad we got to see them in the Warsaw, though, Stephanie. I really, I love that venue for talk tuners on the line who may or may not know. It's a Greenpoint, Brooklyn venue. It's also called Polish National Home and for many years was just a a Polish community venue um, before Mm -hmm. it was converted 
And it is a really cool venue. And if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you know, we love to talk about the history of venues too, because that to me is really as important as the shows you're seeing. And the Warsaw is one of my favorite venues. They would have uh, not only, you know, pierogies, a nod to their Polish background. They'd have those for shows and they'd have those for when they would have these events called record riots, which was hundreds of record vendors and a DJ and pierogies and $2 beer. And it was so much fun. And you just walked into that venue and it's got such good vibes. So I'll just put out a plug to say, definitely check out a show there at the Warsaw if you can, because it is a really, really fun venue. And it was really neat to see Violent Femmes there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the cap is like in the low thousands, if that. It's a small venue. So good place to check out an intimate, see your see your band, one of your favorite bands or just a band you dig, whatever, in an intimate setting, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I loved reminiscing about our Violent Femmes times and so glad we got to give a little credence to this band. If you want to share your Violent Femmes stories with us, talk tuners, you can easily reach out to us because we are on your social of choice. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Stephanie's Talk Tunes, Twitter slash X at Stephanie's Talk, or Gmail, Stephanie's Talk Tunes at gmail.com. And the easy shortcut to find all things Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes is Stephanie's TalkTunes.com. You can find all episodes there, plus some merch. You want to support a independent podcast, you can do it there. So thank you for it. And then again, just big thanks for rating us on Good Pods. That helps our visibility so much. And if you write a short five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll periodically be reading those here on the show. So thank you again for those. I'm so grateful. Please keep them coming. We just deeply appreciate the support. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Let's keep rocking. Remember that we are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Go check out our brother and sister podcast. Uh, get some enlightenment. Get that uh, music craving satisfied. This is Stephanie Pena, and I am out. Peace, talk tuners. I'm out. Stephanie Myers. We will see you in two weeks. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.